0: The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. Glad you've joined us today and we hope you're ready to learn a little bit of Bible because that's what we're here to do is help us all know our Bible a little bit better. The way we operate on this program is we take viewers' questions. Uh, you'll see a phone number and a website at the bottom of your screen. You can use those anytime. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you'd like us to talk about. Sometimes we get questions about a specific verse, a specific topic, uh, a doctrine that's in the Bible maybe. And uh, We get a lot of life questions. People wonder about family or work or politics or whatever and wonder what the Bible has to say about this and we'll try to find you an answer from the Bible. So you direct this program, and we answer as many questions as we can each week. When I say we, I mean me. I'm Steve Tandy, and this is my partner, Toby Levering. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Toby. Glad you're here and ready to go. Let's start with a trivia question for our viewers. (coughs) Excuse me. On what one day of the year (coughs) did the high priest enter the Holy of Holies? And we'll give you the answer to that at the end of the program. One day a year. Got to go into the Holy of Holies. All right, let's uh, take the first question. What does God fearing mean? Uh, And that does sound a little strange to some people that we should be afraid of God. No, that's not what it means. Uh, We shouldn't be afraid of God. Now, there is a place for being afraid of God if you're a sinner that has rejected God. Uh, someday you will answer to God, and that's a pretty good place for real fear. Uh, but when it says someone is God-fearing or fearing God as uh, the beginning of wisdom, that means more of a reverence, more of an understanding who God is. And when we understand who God is, uh, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, He's uh, all of that uh, that induces a reverence, a fear, if you will, of God. So that's all the Bible's talking about: is understanding who He's, who He is. Perhaps a fair picture of it uh, is our earthly parents, uh, an earthly father, a good one. I realize there's bad parents, but uh, a good per- a man who fills the role of an earthly father. Uh, growing up, there is a reverence, uh, respect. Uh, that's daddy. And part of it, there's a little bit of fear there. You know he will discipline you if you need it. So when daddy says something, you reverence him. You do that. You fear him in a sense. You're not afraid of him. Uh, You know that he loves you and cares for you and all of that. Uh, So that's a little bit of a picture of what the Bible means when it says God-fearing. Now, the the term God-fearing was also used in a kind of a general, and let's read one place that it's found in Acts chapter 10, talking about Cornelius, Acts chapter 10 verses 1 and 2 says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Okay, so this man was a God-fearer. And when the Jews said that, uh, they were talking about someone who wasn't a Jew, who didn't really know the law, didn't know who Jehovah was, didn't understand all the history, but they recognized that there was a God, and they feared Him, they honored Him, they reverenced Him, they prayed to Him, uh, and they gave alms to people, they lived a good life. So that was the way they used the term God-fearing. And there's still people like that today there's people that have no connection to religion or don't under, maybe don't read the bible or understand it or uh, be a part of any church but they're they're god-fearing i they believe there's a supreme being that has some moral standards and they try to live up to those so uh, that's the term god-fearing but fearing god is just a reverence for him and not being afraid of him
1: all right. The question next is to ask to explain the doctrine of election. So the uh, the doctrine of election, the the word election certainly, if you're watching this from the United States, you understand uh, it simply means a choice. You know, you go on election day and you go to your polling place and you make a choice about candidate of the local or the uh, national office. Anywhere in between, uh, you have the right to exercise your choice. Well, the doctrine of election speaks to the idea that God chooses, uh, God makes the choice of who's going to be saved and who's going not to be saved. And if you're in the God's chosen, you're of the elect. And if you're not, then you are not elect. Um, and there's some scriptures that seem to give to support this doctrine and teaching, and there are others that. Kind of say, well, human beings seem to have a role uh, in the choice as well. So how does this work? Well, um, uh, first we look at Ephesians chapter one, and uh, verses starting verse uh, three. Uh, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. That's key there. In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. as we understand that choice, now I'm going to focus not on the choice of who the elect are, but got who the elect was, the elect being Christ. It was God's divine choice uh, to uh, save mankind through Christ. And He chose those in Him. The focus is not those. It's the in Him. It's the Christ Jesus. And so... Um, uh, you know, we can look elsewhere in Scripture and clearly see that God doesn't play favorites, that it's God's desire for all to be saved. If we look at First Timothy, uh, I believe it's chapter 2, and I'm reading from the ESV, uh, he says, uh, This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all. All people to be saved and to come to a knowledge, to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Okay? So God desires for all to be saved, but the only ones who will be saved are those who are saved through God's divine choice, Christ Jesus. And, uh, it's up to human beings whether or not they will choose. ...to follow Jesus or not. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The doctrine of election teaches God just uh, arbitrarily chooses those. These group are going to be saved. Everybody else, there's no chance. And when you think about that, that really goes against 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. Uh, it, if that's really true, why should the church evangelize? Why would Jesus uh, uh, make the great commission, send the apostles out and so forth? If that was all predetermined, uh there's really none of that really makes sense missions and mission journeys and all of that so we have to really make scriptures uh take all of the scriptures not just the few select ones that we like let's look at first peter chapter 1 verse 10 and 11 peter says therefore brothers be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election for if you practice these qualities you will never fall for in this way you will be, uh, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says, be diligent. Yeah, you've been called through Christ, but you have to continue to make your call, uh, calling and election sure. So that's the doctrine of election, which I don't think completely squares up with the biblical teaching when you take all the verses. So we understand the <laughs> elect is Christ Jesus. Hope that
0: helps. All right. viewer wants to know, do we have spiritual gifts? Very simple question uh, with a two-part answer. First part answer is, yes, we have spiritual gifts. Now let's look at 1 Peter 4.10. tells us very clearly, each of you, he's writing to Christians, should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So it mentions gifts there twice. The gift you've received, and then when he says God's grace, Uh, That word also means gift. So uh, he says we've been gifted with things. Now, every talent that someone has, every ability, every skill, uh, some of them they've learned and polished maybe, but uh, some of them have a natural, all of us have natural inclinations toward things. Those are gifts of God. Uh, And Peter there says use whatever gift you've got uh, to serve others. If you some people have the gift of speaking, uh, preaching, talking, teaching. Uh, some people have the gift of singing. Uh, those are two different gifts, uh, and a lot of other gifts that people have. Use it to serve others. So yes, we have spiritual gifts. Now, second part of the answer is, if you mean miraculous spiritual gifts, I'll have to say no to that. And there are such a thing as miraculous. Uh, spiritual gifts, gifts of the Spirit that we read about uh, in the early days of the New Testament church. Uh, Those miraculous gifts were given to build up the church. And think about it, uh, these apostles were going out to preach to people that had never heard of Jesus, and they needed some kind of confirmation that they worked for God. And that's what the Bible says those miraculous gifts were. Uh, God worked with them confirming the word. So they could speak in another language when they were in another country. Uh, They could heal people. They uh, had different miraculous abilities that confirmed what they were saying, that they worked for God. Now, we read about those for a little bit in the early part of the church days. And then we see that they faded out. We look at history, and they stopped. They they didn't exist anymore. And Paul explained why that was going to happen. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 12, it's written to people who had some miraculous spiritual gifts. And listen to what he says in a few verses. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And then at the end of 13, he says, as for prophecies, that's one of the gifts, uh, they'll pass away. As for tongues, speaking in other languages, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So there were miraculous gifts of knowledge, of speaking in other languages, of being able to prophesy and teach uh, and Paul says, don't get so excited about these miraculous gifts because they're going to stop. They're going to pass away. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, I usually compare it to a scaffolding. Uh, when you're building like your church building, uh, for a while there's a scaffold in there that the carpenters and painters and everybody need to get up to build the church building. Uh, once the church building is done, we take that scaffolding out. And that's what the miraculous gifts were. They were necessary for a few years to get the church established, to get it built up. Once it was built up, those scaffolding gifts were taken away. Uh, So today, there are some people that say, well, we want to speak in tongues, or we want to have this gift of healing people. Well, you're just asking to put the scaffolding back into your church building. Uh, It's not necessary. It's not needed. Plus, they don't exist anymore. So do we have spiritual gifts? Yes. Everybody's got spiritual gifts. Do we have miraculous spiritual gifts today? I don't believe so. Uh, uh, Time to talk about studying the Bible. I knew something was coming up Mm and I hadn't hadn't prepared. Uh, If you want to study the Bible with us, we've got some ways to do that. Uh, We've got some tools that we will send to you through the mail. Uh, If that's the way you'd like to study, uh, we'll send you one called the Old Testament first, then the New Testament next, and then there's six other lessons in that series that give you a good overview of the Bible. And then there are some more advanced courses that you can uh, keep studying the Bible for a long time with Know Your Bible study tools. We've also added an online course if you'd like to do it on your phone or tablet or PC, we've got a way to do that. Uh, log on to oneway.worldbibleschool.org, and you'll get set up with an online Bible study and uh, somebody to help you with that. If you need assistance, a great way to study the Bible, all of them are. Phone number, website on the bottom of the screen. Uh, use that anytime to tell us that you'd like that free course. We'll get it started for you. All right, Toby, your turn. Uh,
1: If you were asked the question, what does God say about same-sex marriage? Well, Jesus was asked specifically about marriage in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, Now, he wasn't asked about same-sex marriage, but we'll we'll, uh, get to that in just a second. When he was asked about... Uh, he was asked about divorce specifically and how the, that worked together. And when talking about deviating from God's plan, uh Jesus takes them right back to Scripture. Let's look at this together on the screen. Matthew chapter 19, verses four through six. He answered, uh, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, so the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so when Jesus is asked a question, which is kind of funny because he's speaking to the teachers and religious leaders of the day, he starts by saying, have you not read? And they didn't know their Bible very well. And even though they knew their Bible, they simply failed to pay attention and to yield to it. And so Jesus pulls them right back into God's Original intent for marriage, which is one man and one woman for one lifetime. Now, human beings have messed that up ever, almost ever since the beginning, uh, from polygamy to adultery to uh, 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 divorce, um, and and all other kinds of deviations from the plan, and including, by the way, same-sex marriage. That's a deviation from God's plan. It was not what God intended. Hinted in marriage between to be male and female between husband and wife and any time we depart from God's plan that's a deviation. Now, the specific act that's happening between a male and male or a female and female, Scripture is very clear on the act of homosexuality. It identifies it as a sin. Book of Leviticus calls in it an abomination. In the New Testament, Romans chapter chapter one, uh, we're told that uh, it is part of of those who are given over to a debased mind uh God gave them up in fact let me just read specifically for a uh, right in uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 26 for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So in the pages of Scripture, when it comes to marriage, we really only have God's original plan of one man and one woman uh, and the behavior, uh, the deviation from God's plan always causes problems, and it's always sinful, regardless of what type of deviation that it is. So, no, God, uh, I mean, the, the idea of a same-sex marriage is completely uh, anti what God set up in the beginning, and that's what Jesus called us back to in Matthew chapter 19. So I hope that helps you.
0: All right. got a question about uh, swearing in court. Interesting one. When someone in court has to swear on the Bible, does it really do any good? <clears throat> I don't see how it would help those who don't know the Bible or follow God. Uh, well, good thinking there. I'd never thought of it that way before, but I think you're absolutely right. Uh, someone who doesn't believe in God, who doesn't care about the Bible, uh Putting their hand on the Bible and swearing by it uh, certainly doesn't do any good. Uh, That's not the part that uh, makes them tell the truth. Uh, If they have any fear of God, uh, then it does perhaps make them think about the seriousness of the things. And I think in the past years there were more people who had a fear of God like we talked about in an earlier question today uh, they respected God, they respected the Bible and putting their hand on that meant something uh, taking an oath meant something and there are still people today that take uh, taking a vow, an oath very seriously uh, whether you believe in God or not uh, the part that makes people tell the truth if anything is that it emphasizes the seriousness of what they're doing. Uh, You're being asked to promise, uh, to swear, to vow, that you'll tell the truth. And while the Bible may not affect you much, uh, actually what you're doing is moving into a new legal realm where what you say you're liable for if you perjure yourself. Uh, So you're promising, I'll tell the truth, and that means if I don't tell the truth, the law can punish me for it. So that's probably the only thing that will scare some people or cause them to tell the truth, realizing they're under oath, whether they believe in the Bible or not. Uh, Now, at the end of the day, to our viewer's point, a liar is going to lie, whether they're taking a vow or on the Bible or off the Bible or anything. Uh, But in our legal system, that's what that does. Now, I agree, if there's not a religious person, Bible doesn't really add anything to it, and uh, it's just the legal part of being placing yourself under the threat of perjury. So, uh, viewers got a good point there, I think. Let me take a moment and invite you to visit the Church of Christ near you. Uh, We're kept on the air by Churches of Christ, and we like to mention a few each week that help us stay here. Uh, We're broadcasting up in uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and that goes a long ways around South Dakota and surrounding states. And there are a few churches up there that help us with that, and Mitchell and Watertown and Brookings uh, in South Dakota are all proud supporters of this program, and we appreciate them. Uh, We thank them for taking an interest in this program and helping us stay on the air up in that uh, beautiful state. So if you live in one of those communities, know that the Church of Christ there uh, has a part in this program. Uh, Tell them thank you. If you know a member of one of those churches or if you're looking for a church home, uh, you'd certainly be warmly welcomed and you'd find a group of people that study and think about the Bible a lot like we do on this program. So drop in and visit them sometime. All right, Toby, what's next?
1: You were once a, know a question about what did David mean about being sinful at birth? Well, let me answer that question with a question and start by asking you, have you ever done something that either after you did it in the moment or maybe days, weeks, months, or years later, you just looked back and felt so guilty, so ashamed, uh, just completely uh, overcome with just your past sinful behavior and the burden of knowing that you couldn't change it you couldn't fix it you couldn't undo it uh that it you know it's already been done it's in the past but just even even in that thinking back even if you've been forgiven of it just just the thought of it uh crushes your spirit puts you in a a despairing state okay when when we think about that um you're a little bit in the mindset of where David was when he wrote that phrase, sinful at birth, in Psalm chapter 51. In fact, uh, my scripture gives a little context. It says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And, of course, the story is he committed adultery and then basically was responsible for the murder of her husband. And Nathan the prophet tells this story about a rich man and a poor man the rich man had many things, anything he wanted, all of the flocks and the herds, and the poor man had one little ewe lamb. And uh when a, a visitor came, uh the the rich man made the poor man uh give up his little ewe lamb uh and sacrifice it. And this enraged David and he said the the man who did this must surely pay fourfold. And Nathan looked at him and said, "You are the man. You are the one who's done this in the eyes of God. Uh, he had committed a, a horrible, abominable sin in God's sight, and adultery, and what he had done against Uriah, and it was and it was just terrible. And when David comes to terms with what he had done, not only against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against his family, against the king, uh, against the nation, really ultimately against God, he was just overwhelmed with his sin. If you've ever been there, you can understand David's heart when he writes this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to uh, your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Look at this part. This is going to be on the screen, verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold... I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Uh, David is just completely convicted, and he, in in a way, he's repenting because he's agreeing with God over the sinfulness of his sin. We might say it today. You know, you hear people say today, "I'm just the worst." David was saying, "I'm just the worst." I, I think he's he's speaking in extremes here. I don't. Some people say that this scripture justifies the idea of original sin, that we're born sinful. I don't subscribe to that because I don't think God creates sinful beings. But I get the idea that David was coming at. He he understood his sinfulness of his sin, that his whole life had been immersed in it. And he was just overwhelmed with it. And, by the way, he points to his only hope. He says this in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. If you're watching the program and you're overwhelmed with your sin, you need to know that you too can be washed whiter than snow. And there's one way through Jesus, the Lamb of God. Hope that helps you.
0: The viewer wants to know, what do you think about astrology? And I guess my answer would be as much as possible, I don't think about astrology. Uh, astrology is the belief that the positions of the stars and the planets somehow affect our lives Uh, what sign you're born under has something to do with who you are and uh, your behavior and your personality uh, where they are each day affects what's going to happen to you and all that Uh, a bunch of foolishness is what it is Uh, I'll agree that the moon does have some effect on the tides and uh, when the fish bite and when the deer move and maybe even when to plant vegetables. But uh, other than that, where the stars and the planets are, uh, having anything to do with our, our lives is just foolishness. So, no, I don't think about astrology and don't think anybody else should spend much time thinking about it. Let's make sure we get our trivia question answered today. And it says, On what one day of the year did the high priest enter the Holy of Holies? Well, some of you that know Old Testament history know the answer is the Day of Atonement. A very special, super special day in the holidays of Israel. And you can read about it in Leviticus 23. Uh, That was the day the priest went in before the altar and made atonement for the people's sins. Glad you've been with us today and hope you come back next week for more of our answers to your questions. Uh, We'll look for you then. Until then, you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.